This is an APTA podcast. Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. Hello, this is Alan Jetty. I want to welcome listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have as my guest two colleagues, Dr. Judy Deutsch from the Department of Rehabilitation and Movement Science in the School of Health Professions at Rutgers University, and Dr. Kathy Gilbody from the Rehabilitation Services Department at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Newton, Mass. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Alan. We're delighted to be here. Yes, good morning. We're going to talk about a perspective article that uh, they and uh, Margaret Shankman recently published in PTJ. It's entitled Updated Integrated Framework for Making Clinical Decisions Across the Lifespan and Health Conditions. I really enjoyed the article and it raised a lot of questions in my mind. So I, I really look forward to talking to both of you about it. Let's start by having you give listeners a brief synopsis of why you felt it was the right time to update the original framework that I believe you put together back in 2006. Yes, you're right. It was in 2006 and the the framework was first presented in 2005 at this two-step meeting, or was it the three-step meeting, Kathy? Three-step um, three three meeting in a symposium on trying to figure out how to teach uh, neurologic physical therapy. So it was framed within the context of neurologic physical therapy specifically, and it built on Margaret's previous frameworks, adapted based on dialogue and exchange between the three of us uh, who had been co-teaching a course in advanced clinical decision-making in NeuroPT. And that course really was the testing ground for a lot of those original ideas. And since that publication, the ideas were embraced in a subset of our field. So there were people teaching neurologic physical therapy using the framework, but we felt that there was the opportunity to extend it one to a larger audience so that it wouldn't be restricted to only neuro, but across health conditions. And there were so many changes taking place in the profession in terms of updating knowledge, sort of evolving from patient-centered care more into shared decision-making and some of the ideas that were arising from that work, as well as all of the work from the uh, Physical Therapy Association, where they were looking at the movement system and the diagnosis dialogue. And there, was, there were all these efforts to try to you know, more clearly define what makes us uh, unique as physical therapists. And so we felt that many of the elements that were in the first integrated framework could benefit from updating. So moving from patient-centered care to shared decision-making, as an example, and bringing in the ideas of the movement system, which were not there originally, as well as, frankly, delving more deeply into movement science, which was there from the very beginning, but we felt needed more elaboration. One of the things that really struck me, and I was very pleased to see, is that in your framework, you have attempted to integrate the movement science components with the ICF components. And as someone who's used the ICF a lot in my own work, I found that very um, useful and, and helpful. Could you talk a little bit about how you went about doing that integration? 
Sure. You know, language matters. And the ICF framework, interestingly, wasn't part of the guide when we wrote our first integrated framework. And so really, you actually presented at Three Step and wrote papers about the ICF at the same time that we were putting our framework together. And so I don't think that in the first iteration of the framework, we were able to reconcile and understand the ICF language with movement science. But we found ourselves struggling with trying to bring movement science in alignment with the usefulness of the WHO um, Organization of Health Conditions. And so, for example, we talk about task-specific training in movement science, but the word task doesn't exist in the ICF. And so we were like, okay, perhaps we can try to link it or make a parallel between tasks and activities. And that would allow us to maintain the ICF language, which has become universal and well understood, not only within, but outside the profession, with sort of our language, which is the movement science language, which helps guide the way we think about doing assessment. Because when we think about movement science, there's obviously motor control and there's biomechanics, um, but we also think about uh, more learning, which helps us with intervention. So we felt that movement science as our science needed to be aligned or at least linked up with ICF, which is a broader framework for organizing health conditions. Does that make sense, Alan? It does. Um, in concept, in, in implementation, I, I have to admit, I still struggle with it. Um, I have been a, a strong supporter of the need for universal language and terminology so that we can all communicate clearly. And so I do struggle with how to reconcile the movement science language, which has been created by PT, with the international language of, of the ICF. So, for example, in reading your article, I, I have to admit, I still struggle with understanding how um, movement uh, and the movement system, how it's different from the components in the ICF. So... so I'm going to ask Kathy to talk more about the movement system because really she is our expert um, in that area. But before we get there, I just want to make sure we differentiate between movement science and movement system. They are not the same thing. And movement science as a science is not a PT specific right. science. Um, it's a science that um, really converges people across engineering, neuroscience, biomechanics, motor control. There's really a, a, a rich body of science that's completely separate from the movement system. The movement system is, is, a, is a construct that's being developed by our association. So I just want to make sure that there's no confusion between that. Our reconciliation was between the ICF language and the movement science language. Now, we also include the movement system, and, and Kathy can talk about that. Um, but I, I think that distinction is important. Yeah, and I appreciate that. And, and what I should be clear, what I struggle with is understanding how the movement system relates to the elements of the ICF. Yeah. And maybe, Kathy, you could talk a bit about that and, and how it fits within the ICF as you've attempted to integrate the two. Yeah, Sure. Well, I don't think it fits exactly to kind of cut, cut to the punchline. Um, so, for example, um, the movement system, um, as conceptualized by APTA, identifies six body systems, right, that comprise it. 
um, and using sort of the definitions that they suggest or you know relate to those six body systems. Um, they they don't necessarily you know th those are somewhat derived from what we currently use in the guide to practice. Okay, um, and so that terminology in many ways matches quite well. But if you then look at some of the terminologies and the uh, systems and structures um, identified in the ICF, they, they don't match completely. So, for example, the ICF has these categories of sensory sense system and mental functions. And I, um, and I, you know, again, I, I wasn't part of how the APTA conceptualized the six body systems, but I believe that those two examples would be covered under neurologic function. So they're, they're encompassed within sort of the area of looking at neuro, neurologic function. Um, so I don't, I think there are other examples um, where there are, will, if you will, um, lack of integration of the concepts um, associated with the movement system and with movement itself um, and the ICF. Um, so I don't know if you want to, Give, want me to give another example of that, Alan, or ask a more specific or direct question? Let me, let me ask a question that's drawn from one of the examples. And by okay. the way, I found the examples to be extremely helpful in your article. And I would encourage listeners to, to read, not only read the article, but to really look at the examples, because I think it really helps bring some of these concepts to light. You talk about movement system diagnosis and you give an example of a person who is frequently falling, mm -hmm. and that person has a movement diagnosis of deficits in muscle performance. Now, when I look at the ICF categories, under the ICF category of body function, they have subcategories, which they refer to as muscle deficits, including muscle power, muscle tone, and muscle endurance deficits. Now, from my perspective, although the the wording isn't exactly the same, it sure seems like we're talking about the same thing. Um, and and in your uh, using movement system diagnosis language, you're talking about deficits in muscle performance, and the ICF seems to be describing the same thing with somewhat different language. And that worries me as potentially confusing. And I wonder if you could talk about mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it could be confusing for sure. Um, so let me just take a, a minute on this one. The, the, def the muscle performance terminology comes from the guide to practice. So we not only made an effort to um, align concepts that haven't been aligned, like m m some of the... Um, motor control literature and movement science with the ICF, but we also try to align our thinking with our current guide to practice, okay? So muscle performance comes from the guide to practice, right? Um, but looking across the ICF body function labels, there, there's definitely some overlap um, in terminology. And so I think the example you give of um, deficits in muscle power and muscle performance, they absolutely refer to the same concept. The um, body function structure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. For sure. There, there's, no, there's no conflict there. Um, yeah, there's no conflict there. But I do. But, but you go further, right, Kathy, in the example of that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But um, what I wanted to say is that case that you mentioned, Alan, actually we, we don't suggest that the diagnosis is deficit in muscle performance for that case. That's case number two in the paper. We actually identify the diagnosis as deficits in anticipatory and reactive postural control. Now, the patient does have deficits in muscle strength or muscle performance, and the patient also has deficits in flexibility. But we use that example that case to demonstrate that the clinician's bottom line um, decision was that the primary underlying cause of her movement problems was related to postural control. So her diagnosis is related to postural control. In terms of the ICF, this is, to me, a good example of how an important element of movement control, like postural control, isn't identified or labeled in the ICF. So in terms of trying to kind of apply the ICF to our clinical reasoning process, there are, there are gaps. The ICF classifications that have been described, at least to date, um, they classify the body structure like the brain, okay, or broad areas of function like mobility of joint or gait function. That doesn't specify the specific problem with movement. So I'm not talking about movement system, I'm talking about movement. What's the problem with movement that the patient is demonstrating or experiencing? And so because of this, I think that there is a gap between the IC classifications that have been described and their ability to be helpful to the clinical reasoning process. You know, I'm, I'm with you 100%. And I, I actually um, agree with you that that's a good example of an important gap in the ICF classification framework. Uh, and there are others, which I have written about in the past. And so I would be the last one to defend the completeness of the ICF. The, the problem that I struggle with is having identified the problem, there are two ways, at least, at least two ways that one could go. One could try to elaborate and improve upon the ICF Mm-hmm. thus contributing to the universal framework that's being used across the globe, or one can go and create their own um, language, concepts, and systems. And, and my fear is by going down the path of focusing on movement system and movement diagnosis, we're creating a language that is, um, might be clear to ourselves but it's going to be problematic in trying to communicate beyond our profession where they use different language. That's always been my concern. In fact, it's one of the reasons I strongly endorsed the ICF when it first came online, even though I had never been a strong proponent of that classification. And I see all kinds of problems with it that need to be improved. Mm -hmm. But I strongly feel um, that we need a language that can be uh, universal across professions. Otherwise, we're going to fall into the trap of what other fields have done in the past, in my, in my estimation. But I wonder what you both think. Yeah. Of that. yeah. You, well, you, you would say that this problem, though, preexisted, I think, the movement system diagnosis and conceptualization, that it goes back to the description of practice and it, in the guide. I would agree with that. You would agree. Okay. Sorry. I, I would. I no, would. That's okay. I mean, I think so I but I think even in this conversation I keep coming back to untangling 
what movement system versus movement science. And so, um, you know, it may be that the problem is calling something a movement system label and making that up as opposed to just sticking to movement science, because one of the, one of the, one of the challenges with strategy one, which is just refine the ICF further, right. And fill in the gaps, which I think is a valid approach, I think fails to acknowledge specialization, right. And we wouldn't expect everybody to be a movement specialist. And so we don't want a lot of jargon. I agree with you. And Margaret would agree with you. You know, I think one of the value of us aligning with ICF language is that we could communicate to others and say, we are, we are using similar language. And then when we're getting to our specialty, we're using movement science to define um, the things that we do, because there's a whole literature to support that reactive postural control is a way to think about that patient's problem. And that kind of can't be separated neatly into body function structure or activity. It's movement control that sort of links those two, if you will. And even more complicated, Alan, that reactive balance control probably also relates to participation because you have to bring in the environment, right? So those ICF bins are very good at a high level. But when we get to uniquely talk about what's our science and what informs what we do, I think we have to go back to movement science. And I think it's fair to use that language because that's the language that is in our literature. I hope that makes sense. It um, does. And I have no objection to what you just said. I agree with you totally. I think movement science and the analysis of movement is a critical component of our field. My focus is on the movement toward um, profession-specific language and concepts that no one else understands. I'll give you an example outside of our field. Uh, occupational therapy. They are into the, the concept of occupation and the theory of occupation. And if you talk to occupational therapists, they have developed an entire framework and language around occupation. No one outside of OT knows what they're talking about. They think you're talking about someone's job. And that, of course, is not what OTs are talking about. Nurses went down the same path with nursing diagnosis. And they created their own language and concepts that only they understood. And that's my fear. Go ahead, Kathy. Well, my question with those examples, um, with the occupational therapy example, are the, are the occupational therapists who are working on this drawing from a literature um, to develop these concepts? I mean, is there a parallel with us drawing from the movement science literature? So is, is it known in a, in a different part of the world, but not known in healthcare? Well, I think they would say there is a literature um, uh, <laughs> behind the concept of occupation, and there have been books written. Yeah, a lot of theories uh, certainly supporting that work in OT. And and so, um, so I, I think it's a legitimate um, theoretical uh, area in in occupational therapy, um, but outside of occupation, no one knows what they're talking about. Yeah. And I and I sometimes wonder if it's exclusively within the domain of OT, because, you know, we deal with some of the same constructs and we call it participation and not necessarily occupation. Oh, exactly. We talk about people's roles in society. Right. Exactly. So, so, right. so I think I think 
You know, I, I think what you're raising is a really valid point. There's that tension between, you know, the profession's identity uh, versus being able to link to the universal language uh, of healthcare. And, and I, I think it's a push and pull. I don't know that there's a right or a wrong way, but I do agree that we should be careful not to use jargon. And I would say that the whole part of the movement system is the part that needs the most digestion in the framework. It's the newest mm -hmm. part. And we, as you can see, we didn't, we were very selective about what we picked and we didn't pick. The movement system um, is helpful in perhaps organizing systems review. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to the diagnosis, the diagnosis is not a movement system exclusive diagnosis. It's much more of a movement science diagnosis. So, but I clearly from listening to this conversation, that needs to be untangled. It needs to be made more explicit. Um, and, I, and I think that that's a, you know, a reasonable way to go. I think part of the reason we focus so much on movement science is that um, practice has been so variable in physical therapy. And so depending on what practice area you're in, there was historically perhaps more of an emphasis on body function structure versus activity. So for example, in neuro, we always were very activity focused. In peds, they were always very participation and activity focused because of their context and their, but in other areas of practice, they were very body function focused. So we've really tried to emphasize movement science and the primacy of task and motor learning and the environment and feedback and interventions as, as central to what we do. We don't ignore body function structure I mean, we, we talk about using the FIT principle, we talk about recovery, um, you know, based on stages of healing, because there are times where we should just focus on body function structure. If we're going to heal a wound, we're not really necessarily right now thinking about activity and participation. We are eventually, but we've got to heal the wound, right? Or if the muscles of inspiration are weak, we need to do some strengthening. So I think some ideas... Um, are still relevant at the body function structure, but we're trying to really move us into activity and participation. And the literature is starting to support that. Like cases in the musculoskeletal literature are reporting that they're training people with low back pain to move and that they're seeing pain reduction. So they're not focusing on pain. So I, I think there's a, a confluence of some of these ideas sort of coalescing, but we were trying to pull the profession a little bit over into looking at task and and movement and activity, as opposed to focusing on body function structure. Um, and, and with that, I am I really applaud that effort because I think it really is important, and I think your article really moves our thinking forward in that regard. Let me let me move on now because I've enjoyed that conversation. But let me move on to a, another element here because one of the challenges that I see in our field is that we're having. Uh, and I see this as an editor of PTJ all the time, we're still doing a terrible job of really um, characterizing our interventions. And in, um, we don't do it in a way that's really very clear and helpful if one is trying to replicate um, interventions that we read about in, in our literature. And you discuss in your article the frequency, intensity, time, and type principle, which you refer to as the FIT principle. How, how might this principle help us become more systematic in calibrating the kinds of interventions that you talk about uh, in the framework so that we can do a better job of communicating 
exactly what we have done in our interventions. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I, I, I think that's a really uh, huge gap in, in our literature. Yeah, certainly. Um, so we propose that the FIT principle would be uh, a common language to describe interventions at the body function structure level. Um, because um, as I mentioned before, if I'm gonna do some form of strength training um, of my inspiratory muscles, I know that there's a certain number of repetitions at a certain load that I need to do over a particular period of time to see first a neural change and then a biomechanical change in the muscles, right? So there's, there's science about muscle strengthening that will um, be amenable for me to describe what I'm doing using the FIT principle. But the FIT principle, I don't, we don't think is enough to bridge into training activities and participation. Um, yes, one aspect might be the frequency and intensity, mm -hmm. but, and so, and we talk about that, but of, the other aspect is what is the task that you're training? What's the environment that you're training? How are you modulating your feedback? So we feel that there's very concrete language from movement science to help us describe our interventions at the level of the activity or the task um, in the context of participation. And the fit doesn't get us there. It doesn't have enough um, of the details that we would need um, to arrive at it. So we think the fit could be useful at the body function structure level, but we move back into using terminology of movement science that should be consistently reported when people describe what they're doing in their interventions. Does that make sense, Alan? It, it does. The problem is we're not doing it. Well, <laughs> you know. I mean, I can tell you, I, I read an awful lot of our literature and it's not being done. I mean, I still read articles where the intervention is, quote, physical therapy. Right. That's really scary. Mm -hmm. But when you say that, I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool if PTJ um, said, when you describe the intervention, we expect to see these elements, right, in your guide to authors, right? That's one way of changing it, um, you know, before, before we get to let's agree on a model and educate our students all in a consistent way, maybe at least people could be required to report specific elements of their intervention for it to be an acceptable paper, right? Yeah, well, we, do, go ahead. we do that. with the t We use the tidier guidelines as a standard, um, but we routinely have to, you know, send it back to authors, I would say. That's my experience um, as a member of the board, um, to get the details in there. Um, we're doing better, but um, yeah. but I, I agree. We're, we're not there yet. And even the tidier guidelines don't go far enough to cover all the elements Please. that you're talking about. That's the about. thing, right? Agreed. It's almost like the tidier is like the ICF, and now here's what we need more specifically, right? Um, right. So, but but even happens. to bring it past past the literature, Ellen, if you think about practice and you think about documentation, it's so not there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would say that the FIT guidelines, even, you know, as we, we're talking about, you know, they could be used really well and they're not. And they're not done because people, I would say, from my clinical experience, don't want to, but like this transition to electronical medical record systems, it's made it all the more challenging. Yeah. Because if it's not built in, then it becomes um, quite cumbersome to document it in a way that's useful when you go back to then progress the patient. So it's, it's, it's definitely an area we need to focus on and improve over time. 
And, and I, I applaud your pushing the field uh, beyond body structure and body function to look at both activity and participation. I, I think that's been a long time coming, and uh, I applaud the frameworks um, pushing us in that direction. Um, let, let me ask a, a final question. Um, and, and again, I encourage our listeners to really take a look at the article. There's so much there that we haven't really touched on today, but hopefully we, we've whetted your appetite. Uh, what's your hope for how uh, our profession and others will use the framework going forward? Um, well, we have we are very aspirational in our paper. <laughs> um, why not, right? Um, put it out there, right, Alan? Uh, I, I think that you know, you know, in in the perfect world, we could come to some agreement on a unifying framework to teach clinical reasoning in our entry level education, right? So people could at least come out of entry level education with a common language, um, but you know. That's not enough. That's just that's just one one stream, right? That's the newly prepared people. So Kathy raised a really important point about practice and how do you organize documentation and practice, right? Because that's what really enforces the way people start to think about it. You know, you may prepare people in entry level education one way, but once they're in practice, you know, that all gets erased um, and and written over, if you will, um, and then. Again, I think it would help if if um, our journals required some standardization about how things were reported, so people would begin to read it that way, um, as well as learn it. You know, learn it in school, read it in articles. Hopefully, at some point, have it get into the EMR um, so that we have standardization. Now, I just want to say I'm not suggesting that we are necessarily there yet in all of our components. Um, that's the lofty, very high level view. I think in the shorter frame, there's going to be the need for more elaboration, more examples, more in-depth cases like the ones we wrote. And, you know, Kathy and I have been talking to a lot of colleagues across the academies about putting together a program in CSM so that we can have more cogitation about it, more refinement, you know, what, what should stick and what shouldn't, because not necessarily everything that's in the framework as it's written today is what's going to sort of survive, right? So it'll have to iterate. Um, but Kathy, I don't know what you think. No, uh, I guess we see a prime. We see as a primary use at the at the entry level uh, for professional education. It's it's already been used in in some programs. We've gotten repeated requests over the last four to five years to update it and to broaden it so that it wasn't just limited to patients with neurologic problems. Um, and so I think it'll be really interesting to see where this next group of people that we're getting together from very specialty areas, um, and we kind of look at cases and apply it and, and, you know, where it goes. But, you know, it's a work in progress. Um, but that's, I think, where we see its, its primary use at the moment. Great. Well, well, thank you both. I think it's really very exciting. I'm very pleased to see the update of the framework, and um, I look forward to your continued work on it. And thank you for taking the time to talk with our listeners about it today. Thank you. Thank you, Alan. You're thank welcome. You, Alan. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Alan. This is an APTA podcast.